Welcome to Doing the Most, the series where we talk about the misadventures of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Georgie, execution strategist and serial entrepreneur. This series is here to get real about what entrepreneurial life truly looks like. We are driven, persistent, hardworking, ambitious. We are human, and these are our stories. Welcome back to another episode of Doing the Most, The Misadventures of Entrepreneurship. Today, our guest is Susan, and she is an entrepreneur that focuses on impact and creating your vision and getting clarity around what you want to do in business. She's worked with many other startups and entrepreneurs and incubators, doing speaking, and has been known all around the world as a high-impact entrepreneur speaker. So Susan, can you tell us a little bit more about what kind of brought you to that point? A little bit about your background. Yes, absolutely. So I think I am the world's most reluctant entrepreneur. <laughs> had absolutely no desire to own my own business whatsoever. Um, I was often inspired by Mike Bloomberg, who uh, just dropped out of the presidential race today. Really? Um, I haven't. I didn't yes. even hear that news. Wow. Yes, yes, he's out with all that cash. He is out. And many people have asked him, so what made you become an entrepreneur? And he said, it was two words, you're fired. (laughs) (laughs) And so um, my dad was an entrepreneur, but he was not successful. And so um, watching him kind of grind every day and never really make the progress that he had hoped, he supported a family, but it never really achieved Mm -hmm. anything beyond a one-man shop. And so um, I was turned off to the process of entrepreneurship. Mm. My entrepreneurial journey started personally on 9-11 when I was working at a PR agency and our biggest client happened to be in the plane that hit the World Trade Center. Oh my goodness. He happened to be my boss's best friend. They had served in the army together. He was, his friend was a technologist who founded a company called Akamai Technologies, one of the backbone technologies of the internet. And my boss was his friend and helped him put him on the PR and marketing map. And the company became the fourth largest IPO in Wall Street history. Wow. After that day, my boss decided he didn't want to do PR anymore. And about nine months later, closed the agency. And he came to me and said, would you like to buy the agency from me? And I said, how much? And he said, $1 million. Wow. And I said, well, that's a great number, but my paycheck is missing a couple of digits (laughs) if we really want to make that happen. And he said to me, uh, don't worry about it. Just pay me $100,000 a year for the next 10 years. Easy math. And, and I said, I can't keep a boyfriend around for three months. How am I going to keep you in my life at a price tag of $100,000 for the next 10 years? So I declined and he closed the agency. I called all my clients and said, what do you want to do? He's shutting down the agency. And they said, why don't you open your own agency and we'll follow you? And with that, I started my agency in my fifth floor walk-up apartment. I hired my intern and I gave her a vice president title. (laughs) She was smarter than me anyway. She had joint degrees in electrical engineering and opera from Yale. She was brilliant. (laughs) She was absolutely brilliant. She left the fabulous world of PR and became a a doctor. So if that gives you any indication, (laughs) girls got skills. She knew what she was doing. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. 
So with that, I started my business and I had three clients and I was profitable from day one. So I know that this is not how most businesses get started. And I feel incredibly grateful for the head start I got to have clients who enjoyed and respected me and, and my work. But that didn't make it any easier to go through the process of doing this, of becoming an entrepreneur. So with that, that was in 2002. And um, I've been running Emerging Media, which began as a PR marketing and branding agency from the beginning, specifically for tech companies and entrepreneurs, 85% of which were not from the United States, helping them to make their mark on the US market. And we helped about 10 companies to get acquired and achieve that hockey stick level growth over the course of the agency. But I would say, you know, when we were talking ahead of time about the challenges, it wasn't all easy. That same day, September 11th, was a pivotal point in my world because on September 12th, I got a call from a boy that I had a crush on when I was in college. (laughs) And he had no idea that I was alive when we were in college. Reconnected somehow through my best friend in high school. And I got a call on September 12th from that boy who said, are you alive? Wow. And I said, who is this? (laughs) And said, yes, I am still alive. And so we began a conversation that day that one month later turned into our first date and five years later turned into my spouse. Wow. And that man, about nine months after me starting my business said, I think I could really help your business. I'm an operations and a sales guru. Do you need someone like that on staff? And at this point, it was me and my intern. And I said, I don't have anything to pay you with. I can start you at a $30,000 a year salary. He was earning about $150,000 plus commission. And he said, I'll take that number. And four years later, five years later, we were married. Wow. So that was a very, September 11th was a very pivotal day for so many people around the world. And particular for me in my entrepreneurial journey, my life journey, really. But it it wasn't all easy. Certainly when you work with your spouse, you find all (laughs) different kinds of exciting challenges. (laughs) And you take them all home with you. Yeah, Yeah. they just never leave. It's just, oh, this is always a problem. (laughs) Yes. But the celebration of the good times together is better than anything you can imagine with a regular coworker. That celebration goes with you too. And it spreads to your children and they get to see the excitement of a job well done. Yeah, I love that. And this story just keeps on getting more and more, you know, again, like you said, there's ups and then there's downs. I want to talk, you know, step a little bit back and talk about what was the fear inside of you that said, I'm not going to pursue this, the company? Because if, you know, wouldn't you have been able to like keep the same customers that he already had? Or like, what was, what was scary about taking that on? Was it that your dad having the experience as not such a successful entrepreneur, you didn't know if you could do it? Like, what was that? that you said no, even when he did break it down into a deal of a hundred thousand a year. And you knew that, you know, the company already made way more than that from when he was running it. What was that fair? So there are a couple of things. So ideologically, right. My philosophical bent was really lefty. Like I was not a big rah-rah capitalist. Like that was not my persuasion at all. And in fact, I was in college, I would have put myself on the radical spectrum and I studied abroad in Central America to study really anthropology, which is, I'm an anthropologist by training. I went to the University of Costa Rica and I studied anthropology and liberation theology, which is the combination of Catholicism and communism together. And I 
was so entranced with the struggles, the civil rights struggles, the humanitarian struggles that were going on in Nicaragua and El Salvador at the time that I actually hitchhiked with two friends to Nicaragua to take up arms with the Sandinistas. What? <laughs> to fight the good fight. Yes, I did. That was 1989. And, Who are you, um, Susan? <laughs> <laughs> you didn't know what you were getting today, Georgie. <laughs> So I really was involved in these movements for democracy and for freedom for people. And I got to those front lines and I saw that uh, the carnage associated with war. It was not as beautiful as it looked on CNN Mm. or as inspiring and decided that I was, my big fight was not going to be on a battlefield. My big fight was going to be on a different level. So I actually came back to the United States and I got very involved in public health. So my first 10 years out of college were all about public health. I, after coming back and working at Sloan Kettering with breast cancer patients, I then left for Thailand and I worked on HIV education projects in Northern Thailand. And my job was doing AIDS education with prostitutes and their customers in rural Thailand. My nickname was Condom Girl. (laughs) I would go jogging in the morning and hand out condoms to people because where I lived, one in six people were infected with, sexually active people were infected with HIV or already had full-blown AIDS. So that was in 1995. So in working, this became the crux of my work today, actually, is working with these prostitutes and their customers. The fear messages around HIV were terrifying. Get HIV, die. Mm -hmm. That was the message. But it didn't work after a while. And so we had to find a new way out for women who were in these professions. And the way out for those women was entrepreneurship. Mm. So we said to the mama-san who owned the brothel, if you have the safest brothel, the cleanest brothel, the healthiest brothel, you can continue doing business as long as all the girls here protect themselves. And to the men who were coming to the brothel, getting HIV and spreading it to their families, we said to them, Protect your family. Be the mm. hero of your family. Use a condom. And to the woman who is the prostitute who is really just trying to survive, we said to her, imagine a new future with a destiny that you couldn't have imagined beforehand. And we trained women who didn't want to be prostitutes anymore to become entrepreneurs, to become business owners, to determine their own destiny. Wow. And that was the shift of teaching women. Like I'm a girl from the Bronx, right? And I'm teaching chicken raising, pig raising, duck raising, handicrafts, computer skills. Like these are the things that the nonprofit organization I worked for was teaching these former prostitutes. And with that, I saw entrepreneurship. I thought of it as a social program. I didn't think of it as capitalism or socialism or anything else. I thought of it as a way out and it worked. And so that was the big shift for me in understanding that seeing a vision of the future where you place yourself as the hero of the story, which every entrepreneur must do, you have to see yourself as the hero of your own story unfolding. Wow. And you take responsibility for that quest. Then you have the power to do anything. You have the power to overcome HIV and poverty and the situation that you live in. And I think that is the, that is the surprising joy of capitalism that I couldn't see when I was 19. Wow. That's, I don't even like you've let me speech to because that, you know, that difference, like you said, that, that difference of just 
being so disconnected from it and then just jumping right into it and realizing like, whoa, there's a whole new possibility for this realm of work that I had no conscious idea of before. And now, you know, taking that leap of faith. So let's, you know, go uh, a little bit further. So now, you know, you take those three clients, you open up your own PR firm. What was it like in those beginning days? You have your intern that's now vice president running it out of your apartment. What was that like? And, and you you have this plethora of experiences. You know, 9-11 just happened. The United States is kind of upside down. The whole world is upside down. What was that like? Well, the internet boom had also gone bust. And that's when I decided to open a tech PR firm. <laughs> While all the venture capital funding was drying up, all the internet startups who had great ideas that would never become products, they all disappeared and the funding with them. So suddenly the ability to go out and find new business was zero. And by the way, I was 10 years into HIV. My last job before quitting was at the Centers for Disease Control doing AIDS research through a grant to the New York City Department of Health. Here I was going from 10 years of science and public health education to now I had two years experience in PR. My colleagues who had 10 years of experience were on unemployment. Wow. So first of all, I was terrified. Imposter syndrome? I was the imposter. <laughs> I pretended like I knew what I was doing. <laughs> it's not to say that I didn't. I just didn't have 10 years of experience to back me up to feel comfortable like I would know stuff. So I taught myself everything I could, right? And I relied on the expertise of mentors and other people around me who could guide me. Mm-hmm. And so never underestimate the value of that mentor network. I was very grateful to have a supportive partner. You want to talk about testing a relationship early on? Start a startup. <laughs> and then invite him nine months later to join you. You should have seen my apartment. I hung up these pros and cons lists all over the apartment and we were dating, right? So he would come over and say, What's on the pro and cons list today? I'm like, well, I'm debating whether or not to allow you to join the company. He said, what does that say on the cons list? And I said, never have sex again. And he was like, oh, oh I don't like that. And he scribbled that out. <laughs> but these are some of the decisions about bringing your boyfriend into your business, right? But so from the beginning, it was terrifying. And I will say there were sometimes days I didn't leave my apartment because I was so afraid that a reporter would call me back and I would miss the call. Mm. Or I was preparing and over-preparing and triple-preparing because I was just a a woman on my own with her startup. And I didn't know if I could do it without the 15 other people around me who were supporting me in the agency. I also took on every role, right? Because it was me and the intern. So suddenly you're the bookkeeper, you're the president, you're the strategy maker, you're the doer, you're the... We used my bed as a conference table. (laughs) was my first business write-off was my bed. We would sit on it and have conference calls because I didn't even have a kitchen table. So <laughs> that's where the make conference it calls would take place. That's right. When my now husband, then boyfriend came on board, he put all the operational processes in place that allowed us to function as a business. And I really didn't know how to do that. If I had to do it all over again, learning those processes and respecting them. I thought I was this creative fly by the seat of my pants person. And that's what got me through in the agency because I didn't see the operations that were supporting me. Mm -hmm. When you suddenly lose those, you're like, wow. So those two, it's like chocolate and peanut butter. You need (laughs) the great creativity and the fantastic operations to go together. That said, it wasn't all easy. One day can change the life of your business. Totally. And I can still remember it was 2006. We had just bought a house. 
We had hit a million dollars in revenue. Wow. We got married. And we were on day 10 of our honeymoon in Greece. My husband and I were sitting in a hot tub. It was a beautiful night, drinking champagne. And we got a call from the office. And one of our coworkers said, George Bush just passed a piece of legislation that made it illegal for offshore gaming companies to do business with U.S. banks. At that time, 70% of our business was in the online gaming sector. And we lost 70% of our business in one day. Wow. At that point, the phone just kept ringing of clients calling and saying, I'm so sorry, we're out. I'm so sorry, we're out. And call after call, we just got poorer and poorer after we just bought a house and paid for a wedding. And I can still remember the waitress coming over to the hot tub and saying, more champagne? Nope. And we said, bring us a bottle of tequila and don't come back. That is so it's brutal. Entrepreneurship can be brutal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like you said, you know, just kind of recapping, there's like the high highs, but then overnight, everything could change, right? Everything could change. And then you have to figure out how do we rebuild this and what do we do? And in that moment, I know you guys are probably just like, how can we even enjoy the rest of this vacation if they're, you know, depending on how long else you guys had to be there? Because all that's going in your brain is like, well, we have, how are we going to fix this? Do we go home early? Do we try to enjoy it? Do we sell the house? Like, do we, you know, give back all the wedding gifts? Like what your, your brain is going like a thousand miles a minute and you're just, you, cause you just want everything to be okay. You know, that you're responsible for like the employees at the company, what's going to happen. Like if you could talk through a little bit of like what that was like then to fix that issue. Like, did you guys rush back? Did you just kind of say, we're already here, let's finish this and then talk about it when we get home? Well, the tequila pity party lasted a couple of days. So I will say I can't exactly remember. Oh, okay. That works. (laughs) (laughs) What happened for the next day or so, but it was fielding a lot of phone calls and trying to figure out, okay, we had our laptops with us because we're entrepreneurs, right? Mm -hmm. We don't even go on a honeymoon without our laptops. So we went through our new business pipeline and thought, what can we accelerate? Who can we get to close faster? And how can we salvage some of the relationships that we have in other areas? So maybe offshore gaming companies wouldn't work for us, but who was local? Mm-hmm. Who was willing to stick it out? What other relationships did they have with partners and suppliers that would be interested in working with us who we had already had contact with and built up a good reputation with? So it was, we started the Friends of Friends phone-a-thon you know, to see where the connections lie. And this is really before LinkedIn even existed. I was just about to say, this sounds like a pre-LinkedIn and this is exactly what you should be doing. So yeah, go ahead. Right. So the fact that LinkedIn is the platform for it, the practice is really what you have to hone, right? Whether it happens on LinkedIn or something else. So that was really important. Having a solid partner who said, who just looked at me and said, we got this. Our mistake was not, was not diversifying our client base. We put ourselves at risk by putting all of our eggs in one basket. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> you'll laugh. We said, let's look at something far more stable and reliable, the financial services market. So that was 2006. Guess what happened in 2008 and 2009? A lovely crash. <laughs> <laughs> right. But not before we upgraded to the bigger office, built our staff up from four to 15, oh. subletted half of our space to another social media company, 
because we were so confident in our ability to build it back up again, which we were doing until the market crashed. So, you know, this like, uh, we had a tough time and then we rebuilt it. It's an endless roller coaster because you cannot control all the variables. You just get smarter so that the chasms don't become so big over and over mm-hmm. again. You, you do a little bit of more risk, less risk taking each time and then you achieve some kind of equilibrium, but it's never static. Someone told me once, if an entrepreneur, when, if everything is steady, the life of an entrepreneur flatlines, it dies. You know, the nature of entrepreneurship is love dub, love dub, love dub, just like the heart. Mm-hmm. So if you don't see those lines going up and down, something's wrong. right. Yeah, something's <laughs> wrong. So if you could just minimize the downs, <laughs> that's a plus. That's that's the key. And that's the, the thing that's hard to find. And I think too many entrepreneurs, like, you know, like a little note to listeners, too many entrepreneurs out there are expecting, like they look at it from the outside and like, oh, this company is doing so well and they're maintaining and they're making money and they're consistently doing greatness and forgetting like even the biggest of the big companies still need to go out and get new sales and keep the cu- current cu- customers happy. It's on a different scale and you probably don't even consciously realize that these things are happening because they do have a little bit of cash flow or credit lines or whatever, but it's still that flow and somebody is dealing with that. It may not be the mid or entry level employee that deals with that, but somebody, you know, the CEO, CFO, the top teams, like the strategic teams, they are dealing with these things. And we often forget it. We're like, oh, that big company is never going to go out of business uh, because there's like a thousand people doing a thousand things at the same time to try to make sure that it doesn't go out of business. And even if it started hitting you, you won't feel it trickle down until a little bit later, but it's still the potential, right? Google could shut down tomorrow, which is a real thing that we often forget. They do have like a lot of support and like built some consistency and like global partnerships and offices, but it's, it's real. And we saw that, you know, with, you know, we were right. We were the, the craziness that's happening with them. Nobody would have guessed that, you know, and now they're trying to save their butts and they're doing commercials, like TV commercials for a court, like they're rebranding and trying to save everything because so many jobs are responsible. And I did see a lot of job cuts, but two years ago, not even two, a year ago, this was not even on our radars. And now a lot of our f- colleagues and friends and things that we used to do with this space and this company that we thought was just so, oh my God, perfect. Everything is good. It wasn't good. And it was a series of events and how the founders and co-founders and that executive teams responded to these events that then hit and impacted the bigger sense of the company and then the employees. So I'm That's grateful right. for you sharing that. Yeah, go ahead. And it's a reminder too, you know, um, the average company on the Fortune 500 60 years ago lasted 30 years on the Fortune 500. Today, that they last 16 years. Mm, so half. So that which you think is forever is not. Yep. And, and by the way, as it should be, right? The speed of innovation is taking place at a pace that is unrecognizable to our forefathers. <laughs> and we are living, you know, in a state of flux. Things are changing so fast mm-hmm. that the best advice to a young company is to stay nimble and alert. It's not to con- to leave your strategic plan, but to be aware of yep. what's going on around you. And frankly, the skill sets that are you know being uh, created at universities and so forth aren't keeping pace with the market demands. So there are amazing platforms out there like freelancer.com, for example. 40 million people on Freelancer. If you want to start a life as an entrepreneur, 
take a small side hustle with just a little job that you could pick up on freelancer.com, right? 40 million people around the world are on this platform. But you could find people, you know, you could find jobs to test out, see like, oh, wow, can I get this done? Can I do it? Mm-hmm. Could I work with a big company? What would that be like? You know, or, you know, post a job that you need filled with a capability that you don't have, like VR or AI or blockchain, or some of the things that maybe you want to experiment with that you haven't tried yet. Dip your toe in the water just to give it a try. Yeah. See if you could get uh, a ton of data produced online from somebody else rather than you having to do it all yourself and then go, I love how you did that for me. Thank you. Teach me. You know, I love reverse mentorships. My son is graduating from university this year. He is a video game developer. (laughs) Hashtag looking for a job. (laughs) If anybody needs an intern out there for a video game company, I got one for you. But talking to him about what skill sets he's gotten and where he needs to fill in, he's going to teach himself all that stuff online. So never stop learning. That That is truly the key because if, if just that mentality alone is what's going to bring you the success because there's always going to be something you to learn and like recognizing that you don't know it all. Even if you're coming across a piece of content that might seem similar, oh, I've done this before. And I think that's where so many people, you know, fall short. Oh, I've done this before. I know exactly all about this thing. And it's like, even if you've done, you know, you've taken a course before this course will be different. Even if you've read a book that had a similar title, it could have had the same title, even twins, identical twins still have immense differences, but yet we limit ourselves to, Oh, I know how to do that. And then it's like that one sentence of information could be the thing that sparks and changes your entire life, but we don't pay attention to that. And um, you mentioned this a little bit earlier and uh, I want to, you kind of tied into it just now is the idea of the lack of knowledge or the lack of expertise sometimes is what catapults you into taking that risk and then going out there. And, you know, Sarah Blakely from Spain, she talks about this a lot in her work of just like, I didn't know what the heck I was doing. So the fact that I didn't know how to do it the right way meant that I figured out a way. Like I didn't say, oh, I don't know how to do it the right way. So I'm not going to do it. It's just, I don't know how to do it. I have to figure out how to do it because I'm going to get it done, period. There's no room for doubts inside of that. It's just, I'm going to figure it out versus, oh, somebody saying, oh, I, if you don't do it this way, then you're not successful. And then if you don't have the resources to do it that way, then it, that equates to, if I don't have the resources, that means I can't do it that way. It means I do, I'm not successful versus I don't know how to do it. I'm just going to try some things, but I'm going to do whatever it takes to figure it out because it has to get done. So just use coming from like direct and like impactful stance versus like, oh, I don't know. I don't have this much money. I, you know, I hear that all the time. I don't have this money. I don't have these connections. I don't have this knowledge. I'm like, we are living in 2020. You could call, email, text, phone, show up at somewhere. Oh, I didn't get that job. I applied online four weeks ago. Did you call their offices? No, that's weird. Oh, okay. Well, then you're not going to get that job because right, enjoy whatever, the couch. Enjoy the couch. <laughs> so just really re- having people to remember, like you said, you, the link, LinkedIn does the system, but the phone a friend and calling a colleague and reaching out to people in your network is nothing new. It's just how we do that. Like nothing is essentially new. It's just evolving in the way how we do that, right? We've always known how to get around, whether it's walking, horse and buggy, scooters, bicycles, <laughs> or, you know, the Tesla SpaceX truck, right? It's still, how do we get around from place A to Z? <laughs> That's it. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and all of us face competition. Yep. So in the event that you don't, somebody else will. <laughs> so yeah, absolutely. And there's never been a time where information is not more abundant. And it's about having a beginner's mind yep. and putting, checking your ego at the door. 
and saying, okay, it's time um, that I learn again. So even in my case, right, I've had a marketing agency for the last 20 years. Do you know how many websites have been built under our auspices during this time? Mm-hmm. When it came for me to strike out on my own and build a speaking career as an adjunct to my agency life, I didn't know how to build a website. I didn't know how to update my website. I was embarrassed to tell anyone. And so I paid a lot of money to people to do it for me. And I thought, oh my God, this is awful. I am preaching subsistence, but I'm not doing it. And so I had to sit myself down and say, okay, it's time. And to put the ego in a box, I was embarrassed that I didn't know how to do it. And I thought, who owns a marketing agency and doesn't know how to do SEO, SEM? We worked with partners who did all that stuff. But now the chickens have come home to roost. (laughs) And I have to unlearn the things I've learned and to learn to do new things on my own. So all of us need to be in a constant state of learning. I was fascinated. If you really want to inspire yourself and you happen to be on the East Coast and you happen to be in New Jersey, go to Edison's workshop. You can go to Thomas Edison's workshop. It's actually a national park. And they preserved his laboratory, his library, his home. The man had 1,093 patents. He was pretty much deaf. (laughs) He had three months of schooling. And when you look at an inventor as prolific as that, right? 10,000 tries to make a light bulb. And, you know, finally got it on 10,001 or whatever that number was. But here is a person who knew he had no education, right? Three months of schooling chemist, invented the first camera, invented the first movie camera, the first sound recording, right? The first synthetic rubber. All of this is his inventions. Never even went to school. Is it really too hard to turn on Udemy or Khan Academy or something on YouTube and take a tutorial? Man, taught himself chemistry. (laughs) Without all these resources, right? There was no how to do this on you. There was no YouTube around. Like he had to just figure it out. Trial and error. Exactly. He had to make it. He invented the camera. (laughs) And and that's all they're selling us these days. Like we we don't have new phones. Like we stopped buying phones like at least 10, 15 years ago. We're just buying new cameras. Like you see the commercials. (laughs) Tell me this. Why do we call this thing a phone? (laughs) The phone is the least used app on this brick for me. <laughs> Five years from now, we're not going to call this a phone. Nope. Because the only person I'm calling on this is my mother. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's the only person that understand it now. You know, this is a camera. I buy cameras every couple of years. Like that's, you know, that's what's in the commercial. Look at all these beautiful photos you could take. This pixels and you're buying cameras. That's it. That's right. You're buying cameras. Right. But they call it a phone, so you feel comfortable with it. So, and so we're getting to the end, uh, well, the middle of our interview and almost at the end, and we've had a great conversation so far. And you've shared a few misadventures, but is there any specific misadventure that you haven't shared that you think you identify as one of like the craziest things that happened? And if you don't have another story, that's fine because these stories already have been some misadventures of entrepreneurship. I think I didn't know how to be a good leader. Mm. Mm, talk to and me I about think that. leadership, you know, it's one thing to be successful. It's another thing to lead. I think recognizing the absolute brilliance of my team and saying, I trust you was one of the, is one of the things that I did least well as a boss. Cause I was so terrified that my own fear of things going wrong hindered my ability to trust my team. 
Mm. And even my spouse who I relied on and not giving them all of the credit for brilliant ideas and things like that. I didn't take their credit. I just didn't know if I could trust it because it wasn't mine. Mm. Looking back on it now, and I think about some of the brilliant people who walked through my door, if I could do it again, I would find a way to create more structures of trust and input and to take myself out of the equation because it was never about me. It was about the work. And so it's the leadership lesson. I wish I would have delved more into becoming a better leader so that my company would have been a better place. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. And the the the, the baby in the background reminded me to bring this up. So guys who are listening, right? Susan is on the go and that's what entrepreneurship is about, right? She had this interview and she showed up and committed, but she's on the go. She's at a diner right now, but that's, that's what it takes. You're not going to always be in one specific place. You're not going to always have, you know, your mic and sound and hookups and all the things that you need. But the key is to showing up and taking advantage and claiming the opportunity and doing your best within the capacity that you have, right? Don't feel, I don't have this outfit. I don't have this setup. I don't have this. Like there's so many people that are in their heads too often about what perfect look like looks like, or what good looks like. All this content is going to be the same, whether she's in a, you know, a $10,000 booth mic versus inside of a diner, right? But guess what? The diner one is more effective and can be executed versus this $10,000 studio that might get used maybe 10 or even 100 times, but it's never going to hit its value. And we often forget as entrepreneurs, it's about that building with what you have, not worrying about what's going to come in the future because it's it's not going to get to you or it's not going to come if you don't start at your starting point. So I truly respect you for, you know, showing up and being here with us today, Susan. And the last question that I have for the episode is, what piece of advice would you want to leave with the audience if they got nothing from this episode, which I know they have, I'm taking notes and I'm the one interviewing you, right? So if they, what piece of advice would you want them to take home and to implement in their own lives? As you know, again, a lot of early stage, mid-stage entrepreneurs, you know, you have been doing this for 20 years. And so what advice would you want folks to take away and what less, you know, what final lesson would you like to share? So, you know, Steve Jobs said, the one who can tell the best story wins. Mm. And the story of your journey, the story of why you decided to start this business is the most powerful differentiator you have on the planet because no one else has decided to do what you've done. Mm -hmm. In the building where I worked, there were seven PR firms in my building, but each one of those CEOs had a reason for starting that agency. And for me, it was helping entrepreneurs to reach their finish line, whatever that was, acquisition, IPO, hockey stick growth, whatever that entrepreneur wanted, that was our differentiator. But everyone on this call, everyone listening has a unique reason for starting their business. And it means that they do it. They do that thing Mm -hmm. better than anyone else in the world. The clearer that you can hone in on your why, on your motivation, And to be able to pair it with your audience, with the people who love what you do and who desperately need what you do and who believe what you believe, you will attract the finest audience who would be willing to pay three times what you're currently charged them simply because they believe in you and your passion. And that passion is the rocket fuel that allows every entrepreneur to survive. If you just were in it to make money, You couldn't get out of bed on day five after finding out that you lost 70% of your business. The only way that you do that is because something greater motivates you. And that's your 
vision. So if you can harness that rocket fuel, that is your passion, and you can convey it in a story that allows people to connect to it, you will be successful in anything that you do, entrepreneurship or otherwise. Like there are Nobel Prize winners listening to this. There are future economics prize winners. They are, you know, TED, um, number one most downloaded um, TED Talks listening to this. And so I just want you to find your story and tell your story. That is the best thing for any entrepreneur. Thank you so much. That like I'm I'm feeling the jitters from this this interview. Hearing this story and you know, hearing your story of just like persistence, consistency, showing up and just recognizing that it's not supposed to be again, like you said, a flat line. It's supposed to be a roller coaster and adventure. We want to keep like the down parts not too down because you know, we all are human and have emotions and it'll get the best of us. But just recognizing like this is the journey called life. And if it just was consistent, monotone, it'll get boring. It will get boring. Like you, we've all heard somebody talk in monotone. Yes, this is what we're, and we disconnect from it. We want the passion. We want the story. We want the, the shifts and tone and voice and attitudes. So thank you so much for being here with us and sharing that story and letting us be a part of your adventure. Uh, everyone listening, you guys could definitely find out more information about Susan and her work in the comments and notes section of the, if you're watching it on, uh, watching the video. Look in the, the comment section. If you're watching, listening on the podcast platforms, it'll be in the show notes. So definitely check out Susan and her great work. Uh, any final other words, Susan? Yes. So if you want to connect with me and if I can help you with your storytelling, just go to www.susanlinder.com. And I'd be happy to chat with you about perfecting your story. And if you know any chief innovation officers and heads of innovation, these are the folks that I love to connect with and help them tell their innovation story to a bigger audience. And once again, connect with me on LinkedIn because if there's anyone in my network who is helpful to you as an entrepreneur, I will gladly make that connection on your behalf. Nothing makes me happier than connecting to great minds. Thank you so much, Susan. And thank you guys all for listening to this episode of Doing the Most, The Misadventures of Entrepreneurship. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Doing the Most. Catch us here next week same time, same place. If you can't wait, head on over to doingthemost.xyz to stay connected. Until next time, keep on doing. This has been a Gifted Sounds podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review. For more podcasts, please visit giftedsounds.com.